0: A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I am so glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be spending some time with the Second Amendment Foundation's founder and executive vice president, Alan Gottlieb. You know, SAF involved in dozens of legal cases around the country. I think more than 50 uh, active cases right now. Everything from, you know, uh, assault weapon bans to magazine bans to uh, bans or prohibitions on under-21s purchasing firearms. So we're going to talk with Alan about some of the uh, big cases out there, including the uh, decision in Albuquerque on uh, Wednesday by Judge David Urias, uh allowing Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's uh, revised public health order banning concealed carry and open carry in parks and playgrounds in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. Uh, to be enforced, uh, at least until November the 3rd, that is when that public health order is set to expire, that uh, decision already being appealed to the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. You also have an emergency request from the uh, California Rifle and Pistol Association to the Supreme Court in Duncan versus Bonta. That is the magazine ban case. And, you know, the Ninth uh, Circuit and En banc panel this week uh, granting a, uh, a stay, uh, allowing the law to remain in effect and enforced in California while the litigation proceeds to trial. Uh, so, CRPA going to try once again to get the Supreme Court to take emergency action. So far, the court hasn't done that since Bruin, right? They have allowed uh, things like Illinois' ban on so-called assault weapons to stand uh, and be enforced while litigation proceeds. Uh, New York's concealed carry uh, restrictions. They were allowed to uh, remain in place while litigation proceeds. Uh, But CRPA hoping that uh, Duncan versus Bonta will be the case that gets the Supreme Court to act on an emergency basis. And again, we'll be talking about that with Alan Gottlieb here in just a moment. Before we do, though, Biden's America. It is crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink. Just look at the price of lunch next time you go to the grocery store. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is you need a plan. You know it and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, thousands of five-star reviews. They've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call GoldCo at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. Now, let's get to our conversation with the Second Amendment Foundation's Alan Gottlieb. Take a look and a listen. Alan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's so good to see you today.
1: Thank you, Cam. It's great to be with you. And again, let me start by saying congratulations for getting the Second Amendment Foundation's Journalist of the Year award. You really earned it, and I'm really proud of you.
0: Well, I, I I cannot tell you how much that means to me. Uh, it really it, it it truly made my day. I was actually watching uh, the Gun Rights Policy Conference because you know I couldn't make it in person this year, and so I, I got to see the announcement when you made it, and I was just I was over the moon. Uh, and I got to tell you, I mean. There's some stiff competition when you got folks like Lee Williams, Stephen Gutowski. uh, You know, there is no shortage. John Crump, there's no shortage of of great Second Amendment reporters out there. So it it really is an honor. uh, And I truly do appreciate it. But there were also some other luminaries who were honored at the Gun Rights Policy Conference. I saw uh, Bob Cottrell was named the uh, Scholar of the Year from George Washington University. Fantastic selection. And uh, Professor Glenn Reynolds also. Uh, receiving in honor from the Second Amendment Foundation, right?
1: Yeah, it was really a great banner year. We had a lot of people do a lot of great research and publishing and writing uh, and, and activism on Second Amendment rights. Uh, it, it was really tough. Some, it, it was a lot of stiff competition. You were right. It was really tough to give out some of these awards and, and not give it to other people as well. But you had to pick a top dog. And I'm glad you were one of the top dogs, Cam.
0: Well, I, I am, too. As I say, that means a lot to me. Um, and, you know, this is such a supercharged moment for the Second Amendment. Uh, so, you know, the efforts of not only the reporters and journalists out there, but again, you know, scholars like Bob Cottrell and uh, Professor Reynolds, um, as well as, you know, the activism of Holly Sullivan and, you know, groups like the CCDL, who are also honored at the Gun Rights Policy Conference. All of these folks and individuals are are making a difference. Um, SAF currently has more than 50 active cases around the country, Right.
1: I think we're in court on 55 cases that we're involved in right now. It's an all-time record, and it's hard to keep track of them at this point. I, you know, are, are you concerned
0: at all about having to, or, and, and maybe not even concerned, are you having to triage some of these cases and figure out, like, okay, we, we, can, we can maybe hold off on filing the lawsuit for a couple of months here because we got to go after this case here? I mean, it seems like every day now. You know, there's there's something new coming down the road, like in Massachusetts. They've got uh, HD 4607. They're rushing that to a vote on the House floor next week. Um, I, you know, what, what, what is the strategy in, in, in trying to figure out what what battles to fight at the moment?
1: Well, I think our strategy really started after the Bruins Supreme Court decision. We're now like a little, a little over a year on that. Mm hmm. And so that's where the strategy started. Right now, I think we've shifted gears just a hair that if the uh, you know gun prohibition lobby is going to push legislation through, we're going to just file suit no matter what, because we can't wait, you know, a right delayed is a right denied. But when the Bruin decision came down, we sort of had uh, categories set up. of uh, those cases that you know were already currently in the courts because we thought we were going to win Bruin, and we we preceded uh, court cases, you know, we planted seeds ahead of time. Uh, and so there were, there were all those to take care of and and then you had to update those cases based on the bruin decision and, and file you know you know uh, either amended complaints or notices of the courts that there was new action affecting the case and then we had a whole series of cases that we uh, had filed in past years that we didn't win but now under the bruin you know uh, uh theory of, of what the second amendment is and how it's protected by the courts uh, we were able to bring a lot of those cases back again and then there's a whole bunch of cases we had on the plate that we wanted to file that we hadn't filed yet. We we're waiting for Bruin to, you know, you know for to, to win in Bruin, and and then uh, based on Texan history, we could go back and file a whole bunch of new cases. Then there was a fourth category, Cam, that was uh, we did, we didn't really necessarily expect. We expected a lot of these blue states that are very, you know, heavily anti-gun rights to figure out they passed new laws that were, you know, a little less restrictive than the one Bruin struck down. Uh, and try to get as far as they could. But no, they didn't do that. Right. on everything and and, and passed new laws that were worse than Bruin, and that gave us a whole new category of of cases to go after. So that was sort of the strategy in those four buckets, so to speak. Uh, There were a lot of different kinds of cases. And now, of course, we're just filing everything. You you, you attack our rights, we're going to court.
0: And and, so far, since Bruin, I've been frustrated. I – Part of me understands why the Supreme Court has turned away a lot of the, all of these emergency appeals that have come before it since Bruin. They don't want to be the court of first resort. They don't want to wade in on every challenge. I, I get that, but it is still so frustrating to see the court say, "Ah, eh, you know what? We're going to let the Second Circuit figure it out in New York. Ah, eh, we're going to let the Third Circuit figure it out in New Jersey." Um, Duncan versus Bonna is another one of these cases where, you know, it, it, the the Ninth Circuit is playing games. Uh, this is one of those cases that the Supreme Court GVR'd after Bruin. They granted cert. They vacated the lower court decision, sent it back down. Ninth Circuit punted it back down to uh, Judge Benitez's court. He comes out, uh, was it uh, last week, and says, uh, hey, you know what? This is unconstitutional. Just like I said the first time around, um, the Ninth Circuit is playing some weird games here, Alan, where they they took this appeal on banc directly. You've got uh, four judges on the Ninth Circuit who say, yeah, we're, we're, we're breaking our own rules and doing this. Um, now the Ninth Circuit is asking the plaintiffs and the defendants to weigh in as to whether or not the the Ninth Circuit was correct in taking this on bonk directly. All of this seems like an attempt to play keep away from the Supreme Court. Um, are, are you? Are, do you believe that we're seeing that from some of these lower courts that rather than you know issue rulings on the merits that are going to you know uh, find a lot of these gun control laws unconstitutional? Uh, they're now playing these sort of judicial games to just keep these issues away from SCOTUS for as long as
1: possible. You're 100 percent right. Obviously, when the state of California lost the Duncan decision, you knew they were going to appeal it. And uh, there are ways to appeal it, as, you know, would get to the Supreme Court pretty quickly, I think. So by taking it in bonk, they stall. And the reason they're stalling is because they right now know they won't win at the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's what's frustrating to us is you have an unconstitutional law that they can keep on the books and keep enforcing. Because the Ninth Circuit took it in bonk. Eventually, it's going to get to the Supreme Court, and we're going to win. Uh, you know, and there are other cases like that, too, We going, going on in other circuits where you get a lot of these anti-gun judges. Are, are, anything they can do to stall right now because they know they're eventually going to lose. I mean, the text and history is totally, of the Second Amendment is totally on our side, uh, and they know that. Uh, and, and if you just take a look at, you know, the, 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 or, you know, the cases that the Supreme Court's going to hear now, on you know, on uh, the Hemi case, if you look at all the briefs that were put in on it, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that virtually every amicus brief, as an example, on the other side was arguing, oh, we need to protect public safety. The state has an interest in this. We've got to t- take care and keep people safe. You know, not that they can show that any of these laws keep people safe. But the bottom line is none of them want to go back and argue the text and the history, which is what Bruin decision was all about and what they need to you know, bring before the Supreme Court. So they're, they're ducking the whole thing and trying to shift it back to an interest balancing, which is what they were doing pre-Bruin, which now they've been in worse shape to try to do afterwards. But it was really interesting reading all those briefs because they have no new arguments. They have no history, and the text surely isn't on their side.
0: No, you're you're right about that, and and which is why, again, I mean, we're also still seeing, I think, some of these lower courts just abuse or ignore the Bruin decision. Uh, to you know, it, 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 before Bruin, we saw these interest balancing tests, right, where a lot of the courts would say, yeah, yeah, the Second Amendment's implicated here. We are talking about the right to keep your arms, but the the government's public safety interest is more important, right? So, so the gun control law can stay. Well, Bruin says you can't do that, right? Now you got to look at the history, text, and tradition, and so now you're seeing some really weird rulings where judges say that uh, well, AR-15s, they're 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 not protected by the Second Amendment. In fact, uh, only arms that are in common use for self-defense, meaning that they're actually used in self-defense, the trigger is pulled. Those are the only guns that are protected, which of course would put not only AR-15s but almost any firearm outside of a handgun outside of the scope of the Second Amendment. I mean, they are really. Coming up with some very very strange decisions to uphold some of these gun laws.
1: Yeah, they're really stretching things a lot. And again, when I look at it. We sort of have ruled by man, not ruled by law. And a lot of these anti-gun judges, their philosophy and their you know gun prohibition feelings get in the way of, of, of what you know the rulings should be. And, and there's no doubt that every firearm out there is used. You know, they're commonly owned. Uh, and their use for self-defense, making these kind of arguments just don't make any sense at all. It's just the hatred of guns, and gun owners, and gun rights that we're seeing from these judges, and and that's not going to hold up. I, I sure
0: hope you so. though. You know, again, I'm 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 not uh, well. I guess I am a little concerned uh, about where the Supreme Court is, and I guess we'll see with Rahimi. But uh, you know, to see the court turn away these emergency appeals when, in some cases, I think, in fact, I think in all of these cases, there are legitimate arguments to be made that, as you say, a right delayed is a right denied. Um, You know, most recently, we saw the judge in New Mexico on uh, Wednesday afternoon uh, say that uh, uh, Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's revised public health order, uh, suspending the right to carry on, on parks and playgrounds in Albuquerque and Bernalillo County. That's okay, he said. And I don't know if he had a chance to read this decision, but he didn't really do a lot of analysis of his own. He kind of looked at what other courts were doing and he said, well, you know, uh, in New Jersey, uh, yeah, a judge found that the uh, the ban on parks is unconstitutional. But uh, in I think it was the Fourth Circuit, they they found that it was okay. So yeah, I'm just going to go with the Fourth Circuit. I'm not going to really do an analysis of my own. He admitted um, that the plaintiffs in this case may still win at trial. That the record is you know very much in dispute. But he just sort of put his thumb on the scale and said, yeah, you know, in the meantime, uh, she can uh, enforce this ban if she can find anybody to enforce it. You know, there are so many, I think, unresolved questions um, that the Bruin didn't answer. And and that was by design. The Supreme Court didn't want to write a big sweeping decision. They wanted to sort of narrowly apply this and use the Bruin test as a basis going forward. But what do you see as some of the live issues, not not just in terms of the constitutionality of an assault ban or, uh, you know, bans on under-21s, but... Things like, you know, the right time period to look at when we're looking for these historical analogs. Uh, What are some of the things that that you want to see the court address beyond just the constitutionality or the unconstitutionality of these particular statutes?
1: That's a good, very good question. Let me start there before I answer the question and talking about you mentioned some of the emergency motions for the Supreme Court to hear some of these cases. The Second Amendment Foundation has filed none of these emergency uh, procedures act to the Supreme Court because we know that these courts going to reject them because they want to build the court records at the lower levels first before they take a case that's this important, that has this kind of impact uh, you know, on, on constitutional rights. So we've stayed away from that. Uh, the kind of things that we're looking at right now, of course, is that uh, we've done a lot, a lot of legal research. Uh, uh, you know, in fact, in the Rahimi case, the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep Your Arms, which you're on the board of, uh, filed a very important amicus brief uh, by uh, Professor English from Georgetown University, who's basically done most of the work on, on modern firearms ownership and, and about gun owners and guns and and what's out there. Uh, basically to the court trying to negate a lot of the arguments the other side is making uh, because the the amicus briefs put in by the other side are trying to move it all back to social science and, you know, balancing tests and everything. And so we put down for the court, uh, you know, why their analysis is totally wrong to begin with. And these laws don't save lives to begin with. And there is no social science that shows that. And it's a very important amicus brief. So we're we're in that area, even though we're, we're, you know... There is no balancing test that should be done. We want to get to the underlying fact that the other side's facts are not correct to start with. Then the other thing we're doing, like the the Second Amendment Foundation's brief in that case, uh, deals a whole lot with, you know, what. The, the laws were at the time that the Second Amendment was, you know, uh written, approved, and uh, what the history and the text is back from back then. And you reference what dates things should start at. And our argument is 1791 basically. The other side's been trying to to shift that to post Civil War dates where there are, you know, laws that were put on the books uh, against gun ownership for, you know, newly freed slaves, et cetera. Uh, and it's great that they're trying to use justification of, of uh, slavery and taking rights away from people because of their color uh, and their class uh, to try and use that to say that's OK. Now, why we can have gun control now? It shows how corrupt they are in their in their arguments to start with. And so that's one of the areas we're pushing back in, in a whole lot as well. Uh, and it's because of the, I mean, now it's opened up the history to Texas totally on our side. The other side can can show virtually nothing. Uh, and any judge that's really looked at that can't come up with, you know, saying, okay, that you know, the other side hasn't an argument at all. Uh, so they're trying to shift dates on us to say, well, we've got to look at more modern times for laws. Some of them have even tried to shift it to, you know, into the you know 1980s, where this law has been around now for, you know, since 1980. so the history shows you can do it. But the Second Amendment has existed a lot longer than you know the nineteen eighties. So they don't really have real arguments, and it's almost embarrassing looking at what they're trying to put forward,
0: it really is. Uh, and it's even more embarrassing when the judges go along with this, uh, as we've seen in some cases, unfortunately, you know. And you know I mean obviously the 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 issue of sensitive places is, I think, one of the main topics, right? Where you can carry. as you say, all these blue states that denied people the ability to get a concealed carry license in the first place, they've now shifted to this. Strategy of okay, fine. We'll give you the license, but you can't carry anywhere without committing a felony, right? Um, And you know, I know the Supreme Court said in Bruin uh, that that presumptively sensitive places like uh, schools and legislative assemblies, polling places, uh, you you can you can ban guns there if you want, but yeah, they made it very clear that those places were the exception. Not the rule, right? And now we've got all of these blue states saying, "No, oh, no, actually, it is going to be the rule, right? All private businesses by default, uh, parks, playgrounds, not just uh, schools, but uh, you know, hospitals, daycare centers, uh, you know, basically anywhere you might go during the course of your daily routine, we're going to make it a criminal offense for you to carry there."
1: Yeah, this goes back to making making new laws that were stricter than the ones that were struck down. You know, prior to Bruin in the states where you know, they were restrictive to give you a permit to carry a firearm, if you were lucky enough to get that permit, like in New York, uh, you had a lot of places you could carry the firearm. So what they've done now is, say, OK, we have to give the permit but you just can't carry it anywhere. So the permit's a, a useless piece of paper. And so they actually made the laws worse than they were before because while a, f- a few small percentage of people were able to get the permit, they could at least, you know, carry the firearm and use it for self-protection in places they needed it. Now, okay, we have to give you the permit, so here's your permit, but you, just, you you can't carry it anywhere. And New Jersey tried to say you couldn't even have the gun in your own car, as an example.
0: Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, again, I, I, I just – I. I they're they're showing uh they're in the game, right? And maybe the Bruin decision kind of forced their hand in that regard. That okay, fine, we 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 can't just keep nibbling away at the right to keep our arms. We got to go for as big a bite as we possibly can. But, you know, again, I mean, if you read the Bruin decision, what's interesting is that even some of the places that the Supreme Court says are are presumptively lawful where guns can be banned, I, I mean, I, I ran across this passage earlier today. I was uh, doing a little bit of research on uh, Judge Urias' opinion in New Mexico, and this is from the majority opinion. It's page 53 of the Bruin decision. The uh, Supreme Court, or Clarence Thomas, wrote, that in the years before the 39th Congress proposed the 14th Amendment, the Freedmen's Bureau regularly kept it abreast of the dangers to blacks and union men in the postbellum South. The reports described how blacks publicly carried weapons to defend themselves in their communities. For example, the Bureau reported that a teacher from a freedman school in Maryland had written to say that because of attacks on the school, quote, both the mayor and sheriff have warned the colored people to go armed to school, which they do, and that the superintendent of schools came down and brought the teacher a revolver for his protection. Now, what's interesting to me, Alan, is that, you know, schools, again, are one of those places the Supreme Court said are presumptively constitutional ban firearms. And yet in Bruin, the Supreme Court cites this case of armed self-defense in schools, right, as an example of the right to carry and how it was exercised in the United States before the 14th Amendment.
1: Yeah, I, you know, again, the other side is intellectually bankrupt and dishonest in their arguments. Uh, what can I say? I mean, this is what we're dealing with. And so eventually we got to get to the Supreme Court the quicker, the better, because we don't want to make it for that court to change. You know, uh, President Biden has now appointed almost as many judges as Donald Trump did to the courts. And of course, they all have a litmus test that they got to be, you know, for gun prohibition, so to speak. Uh, and as a result, if he gets another four years in there. And all the lower courts are going to shift against us. Uh, All the appeals courts are going to shift against us. And all I have to do is make a couple of changes in the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Second Amendment could be history again. Uh, So, I mean, this upcoming election is very, very important for gun owners and gun rights activists, and we all better realize that.
0: Absolutely. You know, we, we say it every year, and it's true every election cycle. This is the most important election of our times, right, because it never gets less important, but as you say, um, the Democrats have taken this, you know, maximalist position of: as soon as we have uh, the the ability to do so, we're going to pack the court full of anti-gun justices. We're going to overturn Heller. We're going to overturn McDonald. We're going to overturn Bruin, uh, and your right to keep and bear arms will exist in theory, but not in reality. Um, that won't change. I think the number of gun owners in this country. I think they're. Uh, If they do this, I think they're going to be left with a bigger problem of how do you actually enforce this against a a populace that is not willing to give up their right to keep and bear arms. But that's where they want to go.
1: And that's where they're taking the Democratic Party. Yeah, I think they've already taken it there. So I think it's already there is is the problem. Uh, You know, it used to be there a significant number of Democratic elected officials that supported second amendment rights. Uh, On a federal level, it's very hard to name any these days. Uh, There may be just a couple at most. Uh, it's almost unanimously against gun rights. Uh, anybody who supports gun rights, in the Democratic Party gets pr- party gets primary and gets taken out. Uh, it, it's you know it, it, we've reached a point now that you know the Second Amendment shouldn't be a partisan issue. It shouldn't be one party supporting it, one party opposing it. Unfortunately, that's what we have right now.
0: Yeah. So with the Rahimi case uh, coming up before the Supreme Court, you know, again, as you point out, the gun control advocates are are making this very emotional argument, right? Do you want domestic abusers to be able to lawfully possess a gun? And that's not the question before the court. The question before the court is, is anybody who's subject to a civil domestic violence restraining order, and as we know, these, these restraining orders are often handed out to both parties in you know divorces or things of that nature, um, whether or not a civil restraining order, Uh, is enough to cause you to lose your right to keep your arms. You haven't been convicted of a crime. You haven't necessarily been accused of a crime, uh, but you are subject to the civil restraining order. How concerned are you that the Supreme Court is going to buy into the emotional arguments presented by the gun control advocates and that the 6-3 majority in Bruin is not going to be there when it comes to Rahimi? Yeah,
1: I I am concerned about that. You know, Rahimi isn't exactly the, the best person to be defending. I mean, he's not probably somebody we would... We would like to be have the rights of gun ownership based on other things that he's gone and done in his life, um, but the fact is, is in this particular case, the, the issue is more important than the, than the than the plaintiff or defendant, so to speak. What what our my concern is is that you know, it only takes four votes to hear a case in the Supreme Court and five to win it, uh, but three of the judges there would do anything they could do to overturn uh, you know the Bruen decision and McDonald and Heller. Um, and so I'm sure those three judges said, "Yes, yeah, let's, let's hear this case." So we start with three judges totally against us, and I figure that there, you know, are probably uh, four judges totally with us, but the ones in the middle there, because the, the, you know Rahimi is not the the best character in the world to be defending. And again, none of us are defending him per se; we're defending the constitution. You know, uh, Miranda is a good example. I mean, you know, in Miranda, you had a person that you really didn't want to defend, but, but the, the way people, you know, arrested or read their rights, so to speak, are, are more important than the individual to begin with. I view this case just like that, um, and it's, it's really important. You know, a lot of these states have, have uh, ways they give out these restraining orders that the standards of review are so light and so low that, that again, people lose their rights in some cases for life. Uh, you know, in, in courts that just don't make any sense. Also, the Citizens' Committee for Right to Keep Maram's brief in this case shows uh, that, you know, in, in the majority of the cases, these orders are actually given. Uh, there's an awful lot of false positives or people that lie to be able to get their restraining orders against other people in, in messy divorce cases, as an example. Uh, and so an awful lot of people you can, we can prove have lost their rights that shouldn't have lost their rights. And we're arguing on their behalf, not on Rahimi's behalf.
0: Yeah, well, and again, and that's an important distinction because this—if this was just an as-applied challenge and it only applied to Zaki uh, Rahimi—that would be, I I think, one thing. I don't think it would really change the underlying issue. But when it comes to Mister Rahimi, I mean, look, he was arrested multiple times uh, at the time uh, of the restraining order. I don't believe he had been convicted, but he had been you know, arrested for several violent offenses. Uh, they, the prosecutors could have argued that he was a danger to the community. He needed to be held without bail, which of course would have stopped him from being able to possess a firearm because he would have been behind bars. Those steps weren't taken, right? So, I mean, we can argue the particulars of Zachary Rahimi's case and what was and wasn't done. But as you say, the issue here is much broader than this one particular plaintiff uh, and a, a, a defendant in uh, criminal cases. Um, overall, though, I, I have to ask, I mean, are you are you more confident or pessimistic uh, about the future of the Second Amendment these days?
1: Well, overall, I'm more confident than pessimistic of the future of the Second Amendment. On the Rahimi case, I, I, I have some problems with it because uh, the court can go lots of directions. I mean, uh, they can go expanding gun rights with it. They can, they can use it to say, you know, our, 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 our rights uh, should be more protected, not less protected. Uh, and they can use Rahimi to narrow the Bruin ruling. So uh, it's hard to say which way they're going to go on. Uh, we, you know, on one hand, I could say that hey, it's a good thing they took this case because that they could expand our rights. And on the other hand, you know, we know there's at least three judges that would like to limit those rights. So I'm a little up in the air on it. Uh, if you're reading all the briefs, we should win. Uh, the question is going to be, you know, you, you got a person here that nobody really wants to be able to have. Uh, you know, the, the right to have a firearm uh, and he's not, he's not a clean individual, so to speak. And so that creates a problem for us as well. Uh, but, you know, again, the constitution is more important. Uh, we always say that, you know, uh, sometimes you have to let, you know, a, a, a bad guy go in order to save the rights of all the innocent people. And that's the case in this case at this U S Supreme court.
0: Alan Golly with the second Amendment foundation. Listen, I thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to having you back again in the near future. We could have you on every day talking about these cases, and we we wouldn't even repeat a case for like two months. So uh, will you come back in the uh, very near future? I promise, Cam, I'll be here anytime you need me. Thank you. Excellent. I appreciate it. Uh, And, of course, if folks want more information, how you can get involved in the Second Amendment Foundation or the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, where, again, full disclosure, I uh, serve on the Board of Directors, saf.org, ccrkba.org. And to Alan Gottlieb, thank you, sir, for everything you do to keep our rights strong and secure.
1: Thank you, Kim. And thank you for getting all this information out to the general public. It's that important that we have access to media access to reach people. Thank you.
0: Many thanks to Alan for joining me on the program and uh, looking forward to having him back again here before long. Before we get to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day and our recidivist report, let's talk about it. Biden's America, it is crushing us. Companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by, inflation, pushing hardworking families to the brink, as you know, every time you go to the grocery store. Digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it, and that's why you should call GoldCo, so you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5,000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, thousands of five-star reviews, and they felt people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. They're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last, and if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call GoldCo at 855-412-3806. That's 855-412-3806. And now let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there in Indianapolis where, you know, the uh, mayor, Joe Hogsett, uh, is running for re-election on a uh, campaign of gun control. His, uh, excuse me, his Republican counterpart, Jefferson Shreve, is also running on a campaign of more gun control. They want to repeal firearms preemption. They want to allow, uh, uh, convince the state legislature to allow Indianapolis to set its own gun control laws, again, all of which are going to be aimed at legal gun owners, right? New restrictions on where concealed carry holders can carry or where lawful gun owners can carry, maybe uh, bans on high-capacity magazines, maybe even try to float a a so-called assaultman's ban inside the city limits. Meanwhile, here's what's happening with the uh, actual criminals in Indianapolis. The Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department arrested a man for the third time in just over a year on various drug and gun charges. Yep. Repeat offenders, left and right, but uh, again, according to both the Republican and Democrat candidates for mayor Indianapolis, no, it's law-abiding gun owners. They're the ones who are the real trouble here. Uh, according to CBS4 in Indianapolis, um, the uh, suspect in this case, again, third time in the past year and a half, behind bars for, quote, gun-related crimes. Uh, Wendell Curley Jr. is his name. Back in March of 2022, a man reported somebody shot at his car. Police arrested Wendell Curley Jr., charged him with criminal recklessness. That same month, March of 2022, police in Indianapolis chased a Jeep allegedly driven by Curley, which crashed into a fence. The suspect ran away. But inside the SUV, police found an AR-style firearm, as well as another weapon, as well as drugs. In April of 2022, that's also last year, officers raided a home on uh, Roach Street where Curly was arrested a second time for numerous drug and weapons charges. And then in July of this year, managed to go a year, a little bit more than a year, without getting arrested. But in July of this year, police got a tip about Curly being back on the streets dealing drugs. CBS 4 in Indianapolis says after putting the suspect under surveillance, the Metropolitan Police Department pulled him over driving a Mercedes last week. Inside, police say they found a gun, which had been reported stolen in the late 1990s. And as uh, CBS4 reports, the case is, quote, frustrating to some in law enforcement. They talked with Indianapolis Fraternal Order Police President Rick Snyder, who said officers aren't frustrated because they have to keep working and making arrests. They're frustrated because they have to keep risking their lives. He wonders why Curley's bond was reduced from $200,000 to $80,000 following his second arrest. Really, he was able to post that surety bond in January of this year. Snyder says, I guess the question is how many times? Is it one time, two times, three times, or 30 times of offending before you are being held uh, without bail? Uh, He notes people are entitled to bond in order to guarantee that they return to court for their hearing. But he says the courts also need to consider a suspect's risk of reoffending, which is true. Uh Welter Solaris, who's an officer with the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department, says our officers will always work on keeping violent offenders and illegal firearms off the street. Doesn't matter if it takes one time, two times, or three times, we'll always be out there doing our job. Yes. And and kudos to them for doing so. The question is, are the policies in place in Indianapolis <clears throat> exacerbating this problem of repeat violent offenders? And I would argue that with the city council, both mayoral candidates Viewing legal gun owners as a problem, yeah, Indianapolis is dropping the ball. And they could be doing things to get tough on violent offenders, repeat offenders, the guys that they keep catching time and time again. We're not hearing a lot of talk about that. Nope. Instead, again, we're hearing a lot of talk about new gun-free zones, new restrictions on the right to carry, new restrictions on the right to keep arms in your home. And again, all of those efforts aimed at law abiding gun owners. Now, today's Armed citizen story from Shreveport, Louisiana, and I confess, I at first, I, I overlooked this story. I, I already covered this at Bearing Arms because we have a story out of Louisiana where a guy broke into his ex-girlfriend's home, used a sledgehammer to break through the door. Once inside, he started shooting at the people inside, his ex-girlfriend, her new boyfriend, his ex-girlfriend's three-year-old child. Might have been his child as well. Not sure about that. Thankfully, the uh, woman's new boyfriend had a gun of his own and shot that uh, intruder. He's now in the hospital. Well, actually, he was released from the hospital, non-life-threatening injuries. Now he's behind bars, facing three charges of attempted first-degree murder, home invasion, as well as possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. So I thought I'd run across uh, uh, just another account of that story when I saw this headline, Intruder Shot After Breaking Into Highland Home. And then I started reading. We don't have a lot of details, but that case was actually out of Shreveport. The headline that I just showed you, not Baton Rouge. So this is actually a separate domestic violence incident in Louisiana that was stopped by an armed citizen. Um, as KTBS Channel 3 and Shreveport reports, man recovering Wednesday morning after police say he was shot when he broke into a Highland neighborhood home. Happened shortly after 1 a.m. in the 200 block of Boulevard Street. Now, the shooting in Baton Rouge happened about 930 Wednesday morning. So, again, two separate incidents, two separate cities, same state. Police on the scene told uh, KTBS Channel 3 that uh, it appears it was a domestic home invasion. They say an ex-boyfriend who was armed with a knife and a bat briefly got inside the home in Shreveport. case in Baton Rouge, he had a sledgehammer and a gun uh, in the hands of the uh, intruder. Police say once that intruder got inside the home in Shreveport, however, a man inside the home shot the intruder in the leg. His injuries, too, non-life-threatening, just like the uh, intruder in Baton Rouge. He is also now in police custody, just like the intruder in Baton Rouge, and hopefully we'll have more details on this particular case to bring you at bearingarms.com in the future. But yeah, Wednesday morning, just hours apart, just a you know hundred miles or so apart between Shreveport and Baton Rouge, maybe even less than that, uh, two domestic violence incidents that could have ended up as homicides were instead stopped by armed citizens exercising their right to keep and bear arms. Finally, today, in the right place at the right time, willing we able to do the right thing, a police officer in O'Fallon, Missouri, who saved a 13-year-old boy who was in a mental health crisis on an interstate overpass, threatening to throw himself over. When the officer arrived, and was able to take him successfully into custody. This was Tuesday afternoon. Police in O'Fallon got a call about somebody threatening to jump off a bridge. When they got there, they found that 13-year-old straddling the concrete railing and threatening to jump. They were able to shut down traffic on the uh, interstate uh, as well as the uh, traffic on the overpass. Semi-truck drivers helped by pulling their trailers under the overpass in case the team jumped. So he would, again, land on top of the semi and not on the pavement below. Officer James Mora was the officer who engaged most extensively with the 13-year-old. In body cam footage, you can see he's visibly upset. He's asking for his phone. Officers at one point uh, tossed the phone onto the ground near him boy picks it up while he's still sitting on the railing. Uh, Mora can be seen on video talking to the kid, showing him a picture of his dog on his phone, asking him questions about the breed. And then he was able to grab the child, bring him into safety off of the railing. Spokesperson for the uh, police department in O'Fallon, Missouri praised Officer Mora's, quote, selfless and quick action, saying our department's dedicated to crisis intervention and helping those in need. You know, it is... It it, it's no matter when you grow up, it can be tough growing up. But as a father of five, my youngest are eighteen. I do think that it is particularly difficult, more difficult today than it was when I was growing up. Just simply going through, you know, all of the uh, growing pains of adolescence. I don't know what in particular was going on in this thirteen-year-old's life, but I am glad that he is here today. I hope he gets the help that he needs. And I don't know if that would have been the case were it not for the actions of Officer Mora and, again, those good Samaritans underneath that overpass. who pulled over, did what they could to try to, uh, again, ensure the safety of that that, uh, 13-year-old. So, Officer Mora and all of those good Samaritans there in O'Fallon, Missouri, we thank you for your very good deed. And to that uh, 13-year-old, things do get better. I truly do believe that. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms, Cam & Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program, as always. Uh, This is going to be it for the week, but we will be back with another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam & Company on Monday. And, of course, we'll be updating the website between now and then, keeping you abreast of all of the latest Second Amendment news and information. So I'd encourage you to check out bearingarms.com if you like what you see. also encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. All you have to do, go to BarionArms.com, slash subscribe, use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP or VIP gold membership. It's our way of saying thanks for showing your support. We're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. New stories and analysis that matter. Because your support matters. And it truly does make a difference. So thank you again. Until we talk again, well, you know the drill. Be well. Be safe. And be free.